You know, I am asked from time to time by people why it is that Christ Church has police cars out in front of the building on Sunday mornings, or why we have uh, taken the time to form a uh, security and campus uh, safety team that is one of our most dedicated volunteer pools. And the answer is because we are committed to doing everything in our power to keep you safe. And I wish it were not so. I wish it were not necessary. I wish we lived in a different kind of world. And like you, as I listened this past week to some of the horrific tragedies unfolding across American life, I got to thinking, what if somebody had gotten to those people who perpetrated these acts before that thought even entered into their mind? What if somebody had gone to that individual who tried to break into an African-American church this week with a gun, or that person that uh, wrought such horrific violence in Pittsburgh, or that individual who was arrested in Florida and who uh, ultimately created such havoc with those pipe bombs? What if someone had gotten to that person earlier in their journey and invited them into a loving church? had made them part of a community of faith where God got hold of them in a powerful way and opened their hearts and changed their perspective and renewed their hopes and surrounded them with a web of meaningful relationships and led them on a very different path than the one they ultimately elected to walk for themselves. It is in light of that reality today that the local church is more important than ever. That what we do in places like this and the churches of our region and our nation matters more than ever before to shape a moral vision and a genuine experience of community that is transforming in all of the ways that we need it. And it is also in the context of that reality that I want to take us back to this series that we've been journeying through we've called the uh, other six, and I invite you to think about something that you can particularly do to help shape an even better world in the days to come. To get at that idea, I want to invite you to open God's word with me. We're going to read today from the first chapter of the gospel according to John, and I'm just going to take us through uh, the beginning of this gospel. John writes, the next day, John, this is the baptizer, was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, 
and you will be called Cephas, which translated is rocky. Or as we say, Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I think that if you were just passing through the town of Nazareth in the first century AD, you might find it very hard to understand why anyone would consider it a place from which nothing good could possibly come. Nazareth at that time was a city of about 15,000 people. It was a fairly uh, bustling little metropolis for its time. It was conveniently located not so far away from the major highway that came on up from Egypt and through Israel and went up to Damascus, another great city in the north. The ancient city of Nazareth was built in to the side of a hill from which you could get one of the finest views in all of Palestine. The chief problem with Nazareth in the first century was the kind of people who had moved in there and the effect that those particular people had on that place. Nazareth, you see, was the city which housed the Roman garrison, the occupying force that, that went out into all of the land of Israel from this northern post of Galilee. The city was just teeming with soldiers that the empire had sent to occupy the land of Israel. And many of the locals had taken to collaborating with the Romans themselves. They had uh, made a buck by doing so. They were compromising their religious and their cultural identity to fit in with these occupying forces. And for these reasons, many other Jews avoided the city of Nazareth like the plague. The town had become associated in the popular mind with conquest and control and regulations. Hence the question from the mouth of Nathaniel in our text for today, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Are you aware that the word church has become like the word Nazareth in the mind's of many people in our time. It bothers me as somebody who lives in a church that this is so, so. It makes me mad to think that 
There are people who feel that way about my particular home. It makes me sad to think that the church is thought of as a place of conquest, control, and regulation too. But I know that for many people, that actually is the view. That is the way that they see church. When I meet people out in the community and they discover that I'm from the church, or even worse, that I actually am a pastor of the church, they often smile politely, but then they stiffen up as if I just said to them, hi, I'm from the IRS and I'm here to help you. <laughs> Have you had that experience? Like Nazareth, I think part of the problem is because some of the people who have come and occupied the church are, are, are not necessarily the best representatives of the faith. Many of the natives here, of course, are simply fabulous. You are fabulous. Don't miss that reality. I think you're fabulous. But, but some churches have other kinds of people that are living amongst them. There are those who have tongues and opinions as sharp as any Roman uh, spear or sword ever was. There are ones who have armored themselves up with self-righteousness. There are people who seem at least bent on conquering other people or enforcing a set of burdensome rules and ideologies upon them. There are residents who seem just blind to the ways in which they are compromising and, and demonstrating all kinds of hypocrisy. There are church officers, both Catholic and Protestant, who have used their power to abuse kids or other people. And there are those who seem clueless as to why every newcomer to this place wouldn't want to immediately adopt all of the costumes and rituals of their own religious version of Rome. This is part of why when we say sometimes, would you like to come to church with me? Would you, would you like to join me for one of the events or services at my church? People often react like we're saying, would you like to come to my proctologist with me? And that, I think, is why actively working to dispel the Nazareth syndrome, as I'll call it, is one of the major missions of our time. It is one of the major commitments of, of Christ's church uh, in our time. In fact, one of the major stated values of our congregation is to present an attractive witness. We say living to draw others to Christ is our personal daily mission. So how do we go about doing this? When we're out there on the other six days of the week, how do we go about being those attractive witnesses and, and living in such a way that draws other people to Christ? What does that really look like in practice? I think that a huge part of this involves serving the people that God puts in front of us. Wherever we go, wherever we are during the week, we have to enter into every one of those spaces with a servant mentality. That's very different than the mentality that people often bring uh, to encounters. The temptation always is to enter a circle and think, what's in this for me? How's this going to work for me? Who's going to listen to me? Who's going to meet my needs? Am I getting a good deal here? People even come to church that way. 
and then go out into the world that way. But as followers of Jesus Christ, who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, one of the defining characteristics of the people of God needs to be that they're the ones who enter the space going, what are the needs here? How do I help here? Who's hurting here? How can I bring something of value to this place? So think about this. Before people are going to ultimately be interested in, in what we're offering, they have to know that we, want, that we are people who, who don't want something from them, but something for them in life. So who are some of the non-church people that you're going to be in touch with, you're going to be encountering over the course of this week ahead? And how can you be loved with its sleeves rolled up in their lives? I think that another part of changing people's minds about the church involves relating to people in a patient, considerate, and committed kind of way. I'm always struck by the example of Jesus in in this regard. You know, Jesus was on a limited time schedule in a sense. He only had three years to make the dent that he was planning to make. And yet when you study the life of Jesus, the investment that he made in individual people is something remarkable uh, indeed. It's nothing like kind of the way a, a politician might go about doing life, just trying to touch here and touch here and move on. Jesus invested so deeply in people. Before he ever tried to to make claims on people or preach a message to them, Jesus just walked with people. Jesus got to know their stories and their passions and their pains. Jesus listened to people and learned of people. He shared meals and, and milestones with people. Jesus welcomed contact with all of the doubts and the dirt of other people's lives and made it safe for them to, to, to be transparent with them about these things. He came alongside a, the mixture of glory and gluttony and beauty and badness and creativity and confusion that each and every human human being is. Aren't we all this way? And yet Jesus wanted to be alongside this. Took the time to go alongside people. And then after he had demonstrated that he could really relate to life on other people's ground, after he had shown that he was really there to serve them, Jesus took one more step that furthered God's Uh, influence in the lives of people uh, forever. Jesus issued invitations to people. He issued invitations to people. Do you appreciate how important invitations are to the mission of God in this world? Researchers tell us that more than 80% more than 80% of the people who eventually find their way into the life of a local church do so because somebody issued a personal invitation to them. Someone said, please come with me. I'll meet you then, I'll meet you there. I'd love to walk with you and have you experience uh, this church. If you study the gospel narratives, 
you'll find that there are several crucial qualities to Jesus' particular style of invitation worth noting. And I want you to think about that with me today and then maybe just try practicing some of this with the people that we're going to encounter in the week ahead. The first thing we notice when we study the life of Christ is that Jesus invited people progressively. Progressively. What I mean is that he had this way of starting at a very non-threatening level. Uh, he would say, come to me. Or, or come eat with me. Or, or let's go fishing. Come fishing with me. And then over time, he would turn up the intensity of the invitation just a click or two, and he'd say, come learn of me, or, or come follow me, or come serve alongside me. And then later on, he would turn the dial up further still, come live for me, come lay down your life with me, come let me live my life through you. The ministry of Jesus was about issuing invitations that were progressively deeper and deeper, and that's a pattern that we're invited to follow too. I, I think it's possible you could walk uh, tomorrow into some circle in your life and you could encounter some irreligious person in your neighborhood or your workplace, and, and they might respond well if you invited them at that moment to confess their need of a savior and commit their lives entirely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think there might be a small percentage of people that would respond to that, who had been prepared spiritually to respond positively to that invitation. But it is also possible that that would push some people far away. I think that it that would work, what might work even better is if you, if you invited them out for coffee to talk about what's going on in their life. Or eventually if you encourage them to come on over to dinner and to meet some of the friends that you have who are followers of Jesus. And further down the road, you might invite them to share with you what their experience of spirituality or church has been and just let them share it without defending. Just try and understand it more deeply. Try to, to know what excites them or stumbles them when it comes to this whole area of spirituality and religion. At an appropriate time, you might invite them to attend a special uh, event at the church with you. I recommend the Veterans Day concert. Noel saying yes. It would be a wonderful starting place for some of the people that you know. And if all goes well, maybe in time, you'd like to invite them to one of the fellowship groups or the small groups that Christ Church sponsors for people like us, for people like them, or maybe even to a worship service if they're feeling particularly brave. All along, you would also be inviting them to share what they make of all this, what they find off-putting, what they find confusing, what they find maybe inspiring, and depending where they are, you might invite them to go to uh, one of the alpha groups of our church that are designed for people who've got questions about faith. Or you might eventually invite them to sit in that small group of people that you meet with on a weekly basis to pray or study and to support each other. And if you progressed gently with somebody in this way, progressively over time, it might eventually happen that it would not at all feel unnatural for you to ask, hey, have you ever asked Jesus into your heart? 
Do you know that you can be completely forgiven of all of your sins? That he offers you a brand new start in life? Would you like to help me or let me help you go about that process? And you would find, I think, if you were progressive in that way, that there are quite a few people who would ultimately say, yes, yes. You know, it's striking to me how simply major life change began with the people with whom Jesus interacted. In fact, we look at that story we read a moment ago in John's Gospel, and we notice not only how simply it began, but if we read onward, we know how long it took for them to become the towering disciples that Jesus would one day enable them to be. Andrew and John came to Jesus through the simple witness of John the Baptist who was pointing them away from himself and towards somebody greater. Peter and James came to Jesus through the invitation of their brothers. Eventually, Jesus himself would reach out to Philip, and then Philip would reach out to Nathaniel. But the common thread in all that progress is this recurrent invitation to come and see, to come and check it out, to take another step, to, to try and see a little bit more. Could you do that? Could you be doing that with more people in your sphere of influence out there on the other six days of your life? As you practice this invitational way, I hope you'll remember what it is that we are actually inviting people to come and see. Uh, sometimes I'll hear people um, talking to others, hey, you need to come and see our church. You won't believe the building they just put up. Uh, or I hear people saying, I, I, I want you to come and, and see all of the great programs they offer, how solid the teaching is. They may extol the, the, the opportunity to network or to hear some marvelous music or to get some helpful perspective on life's tough issues. Don't get me wrong, a healthy church is valuable in every single one of those particular ways. But if the invitation is primarily to a human enterprise, it is going to eventually disappoint people. You know, they, they might have shown up today when I'm preaching this sermon and they're already disappointed. It's what, this is why I think it's so much better to extend an invitation like the psalmist did. The psalmist says in Psalm 66, come and see what God has done, how awesome his works are on man's behalf. Invite people to come and see what God can do when he gets hold of a human life and has opportunity to do the wonderful things he wants to do in a human life. Better yet, invite people to come and see what he is doing through many lives and give them the invitation to the possibility that might be true for them. Come and see Jesus. Come and see Jesus. I love this. That's the second key aspect of the biblical style of invitation we see. Jesus and his best followers invite people personally. They invite people not so much to a place or to a program as to a person that they have come to know. Come and see Jesus. We have to be honest with people, I think, and admit that it is not always easy to see Jesus. At least not for me. There are times in my life when Christ seems to disappear 
for, for a season. Uh, for his ways are not our ways, the prophet Isaiah reminds us. You, you can't give people the impression that if they just show up at church, they're going to see their life just immediately turn around or be given all of the answers to life. It just doesn't work that way. Often you'll be given more questions, frankly, but at least they'll be the right questions. As the Nobel Prize winning physician Albert Schweitzer once said, Jesus comes to us as one unknown. As of old, by the lakeside, he came to those men who knew him not. He speaks to us the same word, follow thou me, and sets us to the tasks for which he has to fulfill in our time. He commands, and to those who obey him, whether they be wise or simple, he will reveal himself in the toils, the conflicts, the sufferings which they shall pass through in his fellowship. And as an ineffable mystery, they shall learn in their own experience who he is. There's an authentic, open-hearted, open-handed kind of spirit to that sort of witness. And I think that that's a third thing worth noting about Jesus' invitational style. Jesus invited people progressively and personally and also politely. Politely. Now, I don't mean to suggest that there wasn't an urgency or an intensity sometimes to, to, to the invitations that Jesus issued. In one particular instance, we read of a man who responds to Christ's invitation by saying, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Maybe Jesus had an experience already with this guy, that the guy always had some reason for saying no to the invitation. We, we know lots of people who have a way of always saying, not now, Jesus. Maybe at the end, maybe at the last moment, but not now. When Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there was nothing blasé about that invitation. It was designed to shake people up and to get their attention. As you know, because some of you are parents, you can't truly love people, and not at times with a particular sense of urgency and intensity issue invitations. <laughs> In fact, they're commands sometimes uh, when we see people straying towards harm. We ought to invite people, I think. You and I ought to be inviting people with all of the intense joy and all of the sobriety that's appropriate to what saying yes or saying no to this invitation could mean in someone's life now and for all of eternity. I recall a time when a friend of mine looked me in the eye, his name was Bob, and he looked at me with an almost ferocious kind of intensity and he said, I'm going to invite you to a dinner and please believe me, you don't want to say no. And I said, okay, Bob. And I went to the dinner. And I met Amy Ballard, who has been my wife for the past 30 years. It is terribly important that we issue invitations. Nevertheless, the essence of politeness is an open-handed awareness that people are free to say no. The Pharisees said, 
no to the invitation of Jesus. The rich young ruler said no to Jesus. Jesus poured inestimable hours into walking alongside of Judas, but in the end, he too said no to the invitation, and Jesus allowed people to make their choices. He didn't chase them down. It is the job of the Holy Spirit. It is the job of the human will to determine what gets done with an invitation. But friends, it's our job to keep on issuing the invitations. To keep on issuing them. Which brings me to the fourth and final aspect of Jesus' style here. And I want to touch on this in closing. Jesus invited people progressively, personally, politely, and perseveringly. Perseveringly. Ted Kidd was five years older than Janet. They had been dating for seven years, I understand. Every single Valentine's Day, Ted proposed to Janet. Every Valentine's Day he did it, and Janet would say, nope, not yet. Finally, Ted reached what he felt was his limit. And he bought a ring, and he took Janet to a romantic restaurant, and he was prepared to reinforce his proposal with the diamond. And another no, he, he believed, would mean he needed to get on, his, on with his life without Janet. After dinner, Ted summoned up his courage for one last try, and knowing that Janet, seeing that Janet also had a gift for him, he decided to wait, and he asked, what did you bring me? And Janet handed him a box about the size of a book, and he opened the package slowly in front of her, peeling away the tissue paper, and found inside of it one of those cross-stitch panels. You know what I'm talking about? And on the cross-stitch panel, there was a single word, and the word was yes. Yes. Some yeses are worth enduring a lot of no's to get to. Some yeses are actually being stitched, prepared for much longer than the person who's meeting resistance has the ability to see. Jesus once asked, what do you think my father feels about the people of this world who have not yet found their way to him? Jesus then went on to answer the question. He said, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? Now there's irony in this, of course, because a normal person would not do that. You'd rejoice that you have 99. And if that dumb sheep has gone off by itself, let him go. Let him go. God's not like this. And Jesus is inviting us to become more like God. I tell you, he says, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who did not need to repent. Here at church, we have this tendency, I think, sometimes to count the heads of all of the people who come to our gatherings, and we think, wow, look how successful we are. But God counts differently. God loves all of us who are here. Don't get me wrong. He loves all of us who are here. But he can't stop thinking about all the people who have not yet found their way home to him.
That's why he says to you and me, I want you to go to the street corners and the sports field and the school events and the community activities and the family gatherings and your workplace and out into your neighborhood and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. I want you to go out there and invite to the great banquet anybody you can possibly reach. Invite them progressively and personally and politely and perseveringly. Keep going, always longing to hear that sweet word, yes. Don't stop, don't stop until because of you there is at least one more Nathaniel, one more Natalie out there who is now in here. Don't stop issuing invitations to people who are precious to God until they come to see that there is a bountiful good and a life-changing God that still comes to us from Nazareth. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you have modeled for us a life-changing influence that moves forward through invitations. Please don't let us miss out on the joy and the impact that comes from following your example and that of your first disciples in this. Lord, you know the people out there that you are longing to bring to the banquet table of your kingdom. So give us the compassion Give us the courage. Grant us the privilege, Lord, of being the ones who invite them there. In your name we pray. Amen.